0: Pepperidge Farm Milano.
1: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Saturday, everybody. Today is the birthday of Charles Frederick Wirth, who was the founder of the House of Worth. So we're going back to our 2014 episode on his life and the birth of haute couture.
0: And uh, if you like fashion history, just in case you have missed it, there is also a whole fashion history podcast on our network. It is called Dressed. It is hosted by April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary, who are fashion historians, and it is a delight. So enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We get a lot of requests to do more fashion related podcasts uh, and specifically the one that we're going to talk about today. Uh, So this person set in motion really the very concept of a design house and established many of the practices that are standard business for designers today. I won't go on a lot in the introduction because it all comes out in the story. Uh, this is a man who ran the Paris fashion scene in the late 1800s. He really was sort of the, uh, the czar of fashion for France at that point. Uh, he's featured all over our Pinterest board. He is, in fact, Charles Worth. Before we start,
1: could I just say that I'm glad you're around to field all these requests about fashion history? Because if it were me, I would be like, once upon a time, there was a garment and it went on people's bodies. <laughs>
0: Which strikes me as hilarious, because the first time I met you, you were in a costume. So in my head, you're like a, a fashion nut like me, but...
1: <laughs> the costume things I can handle better than, like, the fashion things.
0: Oh. You know? To, to me, they're all tied up together. To get on to the subject,
1: Charles Frederick Worth was born October 13th, 1825, to William and Mary Ann Worth in Lincolnshire, England. The Worth family at that point was really well off. William was one of a long line of attorneys.
0: But things didn't quite stay so rosy. Early on in Charles's life, uh, the tide of affluence really shifted. His father was an alcoholic and basically squandered the family fortune. And when Charles was around 11, he lost everything to the combination of drinking and gambling. And as a consequence, both Marianne and young Charles suddenly kind of were put in the position to have to support the family.
1: While his mother took on cleaning jobs to make ends meet, Charles, who was just 12, became a printer's apprentice. Printing didn't really suit him, though, and after a year in that trade, he went to work as a bookkeeper for Swan and Edgar, which was a textile firm in London. He later shifted to the silk merchant trade, working for Lewis and Allenby, and he stayed with them until 1845, when he was 20 years old.
0: And the entire time that Worth was working on the business side of the fabric industry, you know, doing bookkeeping and administrative tasks, he was taking in a lot more than the bookkeeping. He was watching dressmakers and their fashionable clients select fabrics and choose designs, and he was learning as much as he could about textiles and the various qualities that separated luxury fabrics from more utility weaves. He went to art galleries and really vociferously studied the fashions of eras as represented through art and he basically observed the entire world of contemporary fashion that was playing out in these fashion in these uh, textile houses that he was working in by
1: 1845 he felt like he was ready to move out of the records office and into the actual world of fashion so he left his job at Lewis and Allenby and moved to paris his first job in france as a sales clerk at Gagelon and opj was not only his first real step into the fashion world, but it also proved to be a really personal turning point as well. It was there at the fabric and accessories shop that he would meet Marie Vernet, who sometimes
0: modeled the shop's goods. And Charles and Marie fell in love. Uh, They got married in 1851, and she was still modeling accessories for the luxury shop uh, at that point after their marriage. And Charles kind of decided to put all of those years of self-directed study to work. So he started to design and stitch gowns for her to wear while she was modeling the accessories, like the high-end shawls and laces that the shop provided.
1: This got the attention of several of Gajalon's customers who would ask about Marie's lovely garments. Worth saw a potential market and started to pitch an idea to his bosses. He would make gowns to sell alongside the accessories that the shop was already well known for. In Worth's plan, the shop would provide the raw materials and he would do all the
0: work. Okay, so for context, that may not sound particularly groundbreaking uh, in the least to our listeners, but prior to this, there was really no such thing as walking into a store and purchasing a ready-made garment. So the idea of having a a dress, look, this dress is done, would you like to buy it? Completely alien. Everything was made to order at that point. So the idea of marketing a finished gown was frankly radical. It just, no one had ever done it, and no one at that point even really thought it could be done. So this was before there was like uniformity of sizes. You couldn't walk in and say, hey, I'm a size eight or 10 (laughs) or 12, what do you have? It was more like, here are my measurements, make my outfit.
1: Well, and there's also little uniformity of sizes now. <laughs>
0: right. Well, but there's more than there used to more, be, for sure. More than before. Um, and prior to vanity sizing, it was g- much more uniform. But unfortunately, this grand idea of Worth's was not met with enthusiasm by Gezla and OPG,
1: But buoyed by the fact that his dresses were quickly becoming the talk of fashionable circles... Worth eventually partnered with a Swedish man he met through his work. His name was Otto Bobert. It was after a decade of working for the accessory shop that Worth set up shop with his new partner and a few dozen staff members.
0: So the business duo opened Worth and Bobert in Rue de la Paix in the late 1850s. And the start of Worth's shop wasn't really an instant success. You may have anticipated, like, he's so groundbreaking and people already are talking about him. Mm, It didn't really take off gangbusters like they had hoped. He had customers, but it just was not the blockbuster that he and Bobert had envisioned. He knew he was gonna have to reach out to prominent and stylish people to get them interested in his clothes and build his reputation. So nowadays, for example, asking a celebrity who they're wearing is de rigueur on red carpets, but this was another concept that's pretty much entirely worth doing. No one really talked about designers. Like, they would certainly share, oh, I have a great dressmaker you could use, but it wasn't, like, with that level of, um, you know, cachet attached to it, where they would be like, oh, this is the one. Rose Bertin, a little bit, and we'll talk about her again a little bit later, but just not, not the thing to talk about your designer. While out for a walk with Marie one
1: evening, Charles noticed the Princess Pauline de Metternich of Vienna, and that was the wife of the Austrian ambassador to Paris. She was traveling in her carriage on her way to be presented at court. He was impressed with her demeanor and how she carried herself, and he thought she could be the perfect ambassador for him among the royals and the
0: wealthy. And within a few weeks, a meeting had been arranged. So he sent Marie to present the princess with a book of fashion sketches that her husband had done. And at that meeting, the princess ordered two gowns. She paid only 300 francs for each, uh, which was certainly not cheap but for someone of her rank it really was not a terrible expense and she also promised to wear one of them to an upcoming ball so she kind of was in on the the plan from the beginning of like hey it would be great if you would wear our clothes and show them to your friends
1: the dress was white tulle with silver threading and it was embellished with daisies and diamonds which just sounds happy and sparkly to me the ball was hosted by Napoleon III and Empress Eugenie. And Eugenie was a striking woman and arrived at the ball also in White Tool. And she had this garland of fresh flowers in her hair and a lavish spread of diamonds everywhere else.
0: And while, by all accounts, the empress was certainly the belle of the ball, anything you read about her, and particularly about that evening, they talk about just how incredibly luminous and beautiful she looked. Uh, Many people regarded her as one of the most beautiful women of the day. But she did indeed notice the gown that Princess Metternich was wearing, and she actually inquired about it. And when the princess mentioned that it was made by an Englishman named Worth, uh, and they discussed it briefly, the empress then requested that he come to visit her Almost immediately, the next day, and so with that, Charlesworth's career sort of took off at a really dizzying speed. But before we get to that, do you want to take a word from a sponsor?
1: Yes. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all.
0: you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: To get back to Charles Worth, he really tended to buck social conventions and to dress in a much more casual and eclectic way than you might expect for a gentleman of that time. And this was true when he went to Tuileries to meet the Empress. You would expect a man to be, or anyone really, in formal dress on such, a, such an occasion, but he had on casual clothing and a beret.
0: This, uh, And we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but he really seems like he was maybe the um, the mold maker for the Bohemian artiste designer that has really followed, been followed by numerous people uh, since And I have to wonder if they're aping Worth, whether they consciously or unconsciously are doing so. You know, anytime you sort of think of um, those people that sort of carry themselves with a little bit of pretense and, pretense and they're artists. I, I think Worth may have been the genesis point of a lot of the stereotypes that, that we have come up with around artists. Uh, But his timing, more importantly, when he met Princess Metternich, had really been impeccable, because he had managed to get his foot in the door with the royal class at the same time that Empress Eugenie, with Napoleon III's urging, was really looking to up her game when it came to style and fashion. She wasn't unfashionable and she had style, but she really was, tended to be a little bit more simple than, than one would anticipate and what the people tended to desire in the woman who sat at the, the highest position in France. So it was really in her best interest to cultivate a more stylish image. And so while she had a natural style and she was by all accounts very elegant, she really needed someone to shape her wardrobe worthy into one that would be worthy of her station. And that is at the point where Charles Worth entered her dressing room.
1: During that first meeting, which was held in her dressing room, she ordered one evening dress from the designer. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but it would work out to be the first of many.
0: Oh, yes. He ended up basically providing all of her clothes as time went on. Uh, And in addition to the wonderful timing of meeting Eugenie just as she was plotting a wardrobe overhaul, Worth was also inventing the idea of a fashion designer at the same time that court functions really required multiple wardrobe changes each day, and wearing the same dress twice was something of an image suicide. There are, in fact, stories of Eugenie withdrawing invitations to people after they had appeared in court and had not been stylish enough. Uh, So she then was like, hey, you know how I said come back next week? I didn't mean that. I'm going to withdraw that. And she was usually quite direct and said, like, you know, due to clothing that was unbecoming. So basically at this point, as he's getting there, Eugenie wants an overhaul. And for everyone else... Kind of in the the higher strata of social structure. If you wanted to hang out at French court, you really better have a closet full of incredibly sumptuous finery
1: and once people knew that he was dressing the empress, uh, worth was in demand constantly morning and night. His popularity grew so quickly that the street outside of his shop was said to be constantly clogged with carriages. The shop itself was crowded with wealthy patrons who were there to socialize and to be seen in the shop, as well as to actually order gowns.
0: And for his part, Worth really basked in the spotlight. Uh, He would entertain high-profile customers, you know, in a group. He would sit there and chat with all the ladies. And he would, he had this habit that to me sounds so horrible, but I can see where it would appeal to the society. He would call one or another woman, like whoever he picked at any given moment, uh, in their little social circle forward, and then he would critique their ensemble head to toe. <laughs> Which,
1: like, it's like what not to wear. The yeah, Charles but like sneak condition. attack.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I presume if you were going to visit him, you probably already tried to be turned out and look as as good as you possibly could. But... That uh, sounds very scary to me. Uh, And sometimes he would be very um, positive and say, oh, you look beautiful, you know, this is all working. But he would also critique people and tell them, like, your outfit is horrible and here's what needs fixing. And while you might think this kind of behavior could potentially drive customers away, it did not. It kind of upped his appeal. Uh, He ended up designing not only for Empress Eugenie, but even the likes of Queen Victoria and Empress Elizabeth. He designed Elizabeth's coronation gown when she became Queen of Hungary. And so a high-end gown from the House of Worth could run as much as $10,000. Although there were customers and clients that did not spend that much. Some would spend that much in a year, but some would drop that much at a pop. And that's a lot when you consider mid-1800s. Also part of his sort of uh, mystique or his cultivated personality, Empress Eugenie would sometimes butt heads with him about how uh, an a garment or a gown should be executed or what cloth should be used. But she basically always caved in to what he wanted to do, which is saying a great deal about his power. Uh, you know, he basically is with the most powerful woman in the country and going, no, 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 you're wrong. Just let me do my thing. And she would go, oh, okay. Uh, she ended up nicknaming him the tyrant of fashion.
1: By 1864, so five years into his creative relationship with the empress, Worth had become the official courturier of the French court and it's estimated that his fashion house was producing between 10,000 and 11,000 pieces a year in gowns and outerwear to keep the finest ladies in France outfitted in the latest styles.
0: So with that level of output, obviously, he was not doing all the stitching himself. Uh, he maintained the integrity of his brand, though, by just being a really conscientious manager. He held his garments to the highest quality standards. He hired only the best seamstresses and dressmakers to execute his designs. One of the sort of signatures of his uh, clothing was that the interiors of the garment garments had to be finished so well that they would rival the outside in beauty, like, There was no ugly interiors. Everything was beautiful inside and out.
1: He also used only the finest fabrics. His textile choices could really make a year for a weaver. Lyon had been known as a hub of really exquisite silk, and Worth took advantage of having such incredible fabrics so close by in his adopted home country. Textile mills would send Worth samples in the hopes of getting a lucrative order out of it.
0: Yeah, he really, you know, his word was gold in terms of the textile world. Like, if he endorsed a particular weaver, whether or not he did a huge order for that year, they basically were going to do great for that year. Uh, and as his fame and prestige grew, Worth, as you may have surmised from our anecdote a few moments ago about how he would critique ladies' outfits in front of their peers, could sometimes be a bit of a pill. Um His mannerisms would sometimes come off as affected. Uh, He kind of really did cultivate this personality of being eclectic, being a little bit nutty. Uh, He would often wear really colorful robes, and he always wore his signature black beret or a black skull cap. And at one point, he decided he was going to design his own coat of arms, which he did, and had it worked into the gates of his home... Uh, And in some ways, he became almost as famous for his ego as for his designing talent.
1: But, you know, none of that ever seemed to distract people from thinking his work was amazing. And so things were going swimmingly for him, and he was the darling of the French court uh, until circumstances intervened, which we'll talk about after another brief break. Family secrets. It turns out that just about everyone has them which accounts for the incredible outpouring of community and sharing of these stories that's happening as a result of my podcast Family Secrets. My name is Danny Shapiro and I'm a writer, author of the instant New York Times best-selling memoir Inheritance, which I wrote after discovering a massive secret that had been kept from me all my life. That discovery changed my life in good ways and hard ways and led to this podcast. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: Well, back to Charles Worth. Uh, during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, the House of Worth, like many high-end businesses in France, closed temporarily. Charles's greatest benefactor, the Empress Eugénie, was forced into exile, and the Rue de la Paix, home of the House of Worth, actually became a hospital for injured French soldiers during the fighting.
1: But once the conflict had ended and the dust had settled, the House of Worth reopened, surprisingly to even greater success. Uh, Although Otto Bobert was no longer part of the business, he had been uneasy about setting the shop up again after their first first venture was so abruptly cut short due to the political climate. So Worth bought bought out his share of the empire for 1.5 million francs. And while most of his French clients were gone, he still had plenty of wealthy fans from the United States and Europe who were happy to order gowns. So business was really booming, even though the climate was so much different. So much so that the tiny shop that started with just 50 employees wound up swelling to a staff of more than a 1,000.
0: Yeah, he, I mean, we've heard it so many times before when we've talked about design houses uh, or, you know, people that uh, make their living in sort of extravagant arenas that something will happen like a war and they never quite recover. But in fact, he's sort of the exception that proves the rule. He did great after the war. Uh, However, as his career stretched into the 1880s, his cachet started to ebb. Uh, When the groundbreaking gown maker died in 1885, he had really already been eclipsed by the next generation of designers, including Paquin and Doucet. Of course, there would have been no next generation of designers if Worth had not paved the way.
1: When Charles Worth died, his sons Gaston and Jean-Philippe inherited the family business, and that worked out really well for a a lot of years. Gaston handled the business side of things while Jean-Philippe did all the designing. Through the years, other family members also worked at the fashion house that was started by Charles Worth. However, eventually, there was the anti-corset movement and a trend towards simpler lines, and those were led by previous podcast subject Paul Poiret. Uh, as that all took hold, the House of Worth found its business slowly dwindling year by year, and it finally closed up shop for the last time in 1956.
0: But I think to really understand the importance of Charles Worth's stature in fashion history, we have to look at some of the genuinely revolutionary ideas that he introduced. And we'll start with one that did not stick around, but it completely defined Victorian fashion for a lot of people, and that is the bustle. So over time, he evolved the crinoline, so the, the wide-bottomed dresses, into a partial crinoline which stuck out behind a lady, so it gave her kind of a large rump-shape and projected beyond that, while the front of her silhouette remained narrow for the most part. And when people today think of Victorian fashion, it is usually the bustle that springs to mind uh, in the silhouettes. Like, they'll go corset, and then bustle is usually second. And that's all because of worth. And just for the record, I love bustle gowns. I love, love, love bustle gowns. I have several. (laughs) You know, at at the top of the
1: episode where I was like, it's a garment, and it goes on your body. I also... Love bustles. Uh, and part of that is because of a costume class that I took that was all about draping bustles and different Ugh. shapes that you could get with different bustle drapes.
0: I, I love, love them too. I, I know to the modern eye and to people that are not into historical fashion, they look ridiculous. I just love that silhouette. I can't even describe why. It looks beautiful, it's super fun to wear. Well, and uh-huh.
1: to be fair, there were people who thought it was ridiculous at, at the time. I remember editorial cartoons that were like of oh, a lady yeah. with a snail attached to the back of her body. So other dressmakers were often dubious of new technology, but Worth really embraced the sewing machine as a way to expedite production without sacrificing quality. And he also used manufactured trims on his garments before people widely accepted
0: that either. Yeah, he was just ahead of his time in all, in his visions uh, for fashion. And in another completely new approach to fashion, remember prior to this time, all, pretty much all garments were made to order specifically for the wearer. But Worth would often sell his original garment that he had made to foreign buyers. And he would also sell rights to copy and distribute it Uh, as, you know, the recreated style. So basically he was selling the rights to make copies. So design licensing was born with him. And on a related business model, he would actually make ready to wear gowns to sell to department stores abroad. Department stores were a completely new concept. So, uh, you know, the idea that he was like, yeah, I'll get in on this and willing to take this risk and sell to them was really huge. So despite being the
1: designer of really lavish gowns for the elite ladies of France, Charles Worth was also the first designer to really turn a practical eye to the length of ladies' gowns during this time. The hems of Victorian gowns were just notorious for dragging on the ground and getting completely filthy anytime there was dampness or mud. And Worth thought this was really a pity, so he shortened the hems of day gowns to create what came to be known as the walking skirt. And these skirts really weren't all that short, but it was enough to stay lifted off the ground while still offering kind of a head-to-toe appearance.
0: And uh, just in case we were not entirely clear, those were like the day gowns for evening wear it still was full length. But for getting about town and running your errands and going calling, you could actually, you know, stroll about without getting too mucky. Uh, And the House of Worth in Beauvoir is widely considered to have been the first true fashion house, and it straddled the line between being open to the public and also being very exclusive. So upon entry, customers were greeted by gentlemen in fine attire, the shop was decorated really sumptuously and beautifully, and then these customers would be brought to one of the shop's salons to see either a presentation of available gowns. They could also go to a different salon to view fabric samples and design sketches, or they could go in this room to try on outfits that had, um, specialty lighting designed for it. It was slightly dimmed and it was meant to mimic the lighting that they would most commonly find at like a ball or another formal event.
1: Before Worth, no one had ever thought to create a whole series of garments to then present together as a fashion show. So the concept of a collection was another one of his innovations. Now there's this whole industry and culture around seasonal showings of different designers, and that really started with Charles Worth.
0: Yeah, when you, if anybody watches Project Runway and they all talk about going to Fashion Week and like Fashion Week would not have existed (laughs) in the form it was today had Charles Worth not been like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put together a bunch of beautiful outfits. I'm going to put on a little show and then people can order them. That's how it still works today. And it's all because he did this. So uh, because he was the first designer to offer a collection and market ready to wear gowns and produce a large volume of garments each year, it's also probably no surprise that he is the one that came up with the idea of standardized patterns. Uh, and this is still holds today to some degree. Worth and his dressmakers and drapers developed a series of pattern slopers. So to oversimplify what a sloper is, it's like a basic block pattern. Uh, That can then be modified. And these pattern pieces would work interchangeably with one another. So any sleeve or collar in the collection could be used on any bodice in the collection. And it really just streamlined the whole process of manufacturing these garments, but still maintaining a really high level of quality.
1: So the idea of adding a signature to a garment the way a painter would sign a piece of art was really unheard of until Charles Worth started doing exactly that with labels and prior to him the idea of telling someone who you were wearing would have been really odd would have been sort of like telling someone the name of your maid if they said that your home looked very nice uh but the label became sort of a status symbol
0: and some of this of course is also tied to industrialization so uh to make a comparison to our marie antoinette episode and rose barton Uh, ladies in Marie Antoinette's era would never have said, oh, I'm wearing Rose Bertin in quite the same way that someone would say, oh, I'm wearing a worth. But part of that was due to the fact that, you know, if Rose Bertin made or embellished a dress for someone, everyone already knew it. She was sort of so um, able to be really choosy in her clients. You know, she really only serviced people of the French court. Worth certainly serviced the French court, but he also, like we said, was open to the public. So, Uh, and he was also working in, a time when the garment industry was diversifying. There were more choices for consumers. Industrialization was allowing a lot more garment houses to open up that weren't necessarily design houses, but just produced clothing. And also because he licensed things, there were also copycats uh, that were not licensed that were starting to crop up. So wearing an original Worth did indeed have clout. In
1: 1868, Charles Worth established the official classification of haute couture and to be able to claim status as an haute couture house, a designer had to be recognized as such by a division of the French Ministry of Industry, uh, known as the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture. Worth established both the chambre and the requirements that a design house had to meet in order to earn this honor. So to qualify a designer of hand-finished, custom-made clothing had to employ at least 20 artisans in a laboratory environment and show a minimum number of new designs every year. Additionally, there were stringent technical and creative standards, and the list of designers allowed to use this label still exists. It's reviewed every year, and usually there are only about a dozen houses that are on the list at any given time. It's a phrase that's kind of lost a lot of its meaning in the modern vernacular, but it really represents the absolute highest level of excellence from both a design and an execution standpoint for garments.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things you'll see people talking about couture and mentioning haute couture. It's, uh, but it's, it's really much more specific than I think people realize, because again... Like you can't say most designers are haute couture. Like Jean-Paul Gaultier is uh, an officially recognized haute couture designer. Uh, but most designers are not. Again, this is a very short list, uh, and it it really does represent an extremely high standard. There was a video, and I'll try to find it so we can put it in the show notes, that is not particularly historical, but it is a video of, of sort of what goes into a modern haute couture gown, and you see all of the hours of painstaking labor that really, really technically skilled stitchers and artisans go through to apply embellishment and make sure every seam is perfect and every seam again the inside is just as beautiful as the outside uh so it really is quite a high honor and quite a level of excellence that's associated with that term whereas you will hear it mentioned on television and in film all the time and it's not really uh exactly the correct usage of it I mean I use the sloppy usage as well I'm not judging anybody but Just for clarity, that's the scoop without couture.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay.
1: On an epic scale. Power does everything. Power
0: gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Duman Tuman Bay. Bay. Be sharp and done! Listen to all episodes of Man Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.